0: Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ
1: Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes. (laughs) have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the Internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 171, and today is Friday, June 18, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man, Radio Joe Hughes will be participating remotely from the John Don store in Seattle, Washington, where he's teaching a training course, and the intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, a continuation of our discussion with architect and founder of the Building Ecology Group and ISIAC Executive Director, Hal Levin, commentary by Dr. Dieter Weil, and around them. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's help, have been working on the IEQRadio.com website. We add to the website and blog each week after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IEQ Radio and the IEQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and the improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase
1: products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com.
2: John Don Products. We're a restoration and abatement contractor's shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N dot and our new
1: marquee sponsor, Cleanfax and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfax.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can download the show by going to our website, which is www.iaqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. You can also obtain the show through iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC Continuing Education credits, City Renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email is cliffslotnick at unsmoked.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Radio Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Okay, how about some trivia, Annie? won a cool prize by feeding fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to Z at prorestoreproducts.com, or you can text it into the show. Congratulations to Quickdraw John Lapoteur, Microshield
0: Environmental,
1: <laughs> Micro Environmental Services, for his answer identifying Charles Joseph Whitman as a student at the University of Texas who on August 1st, 1966 killed 14 people and wounded 32 others. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, June 18th, 2010. The subject matter for today's trivia question comes from the field of American architectural history. There are two homes in western Pennsylvania designed by the famous Frank Lloyd Wright. Name them. Okay, our guest this morning is Hal Levin. He is a research architect with Building Ecology Research Group based in Santa Cruz, California. Mr. Levin has conducted research and consulted on building impacts on occupant health and comfort as well as on the larger environment. Since 1978, his work has focused on the integration of knowledge about indoor and outdoor air pollution as well as other risk factors into the design, construction, and operation of residential, educational, and commercial buildings and communities. He has contributed to the design of many award-winning buildings, including the design of ventilation systems, building material selection, energy conservation, and total environmental quality. He has contributed to the scientific and professional advancements in the fields of life cycle analysis and risk assessment as indicators of the sustainability of building designs and practices. He coined the term building ecology in the late 1970s and first published an article by that title in 1981, which focused on the dynamic and interdependent relationships between buildings, their occupants, and the larger environment. His list of clients includes governments, industry, and private individuals on five continents. Hal, thank you for joining us on IEQ Radio, and here's your intro music. Nuts, get your popcorn. I hear the crack of the bat. Hey kids, silly old friends, bring their gloves and their hats. great American pastime. Lead by one and all. From the sandbox to the major leaks. You can
2: hear the umpire call. Let's play ball.
1: Okay, let's play ball. Radio Joe, are you there?
2: I am. T- okay. I'm so here you want to ask, want ask
1: hello
2: the first clip. question? Sure. Welcome, Hal. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hey, that's my favorite song. What was it?
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> that
1: song is called The Baseball Song by Flanman Music Gilly's Band. I'll send you the link if you want it, Hal. All
0: right.
2: Great. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. How I'm, I'm remote today. I'm not too far from you. Um, on the last show, we discussed a little about your past, and you gave us your definition of you know building ecology. You also stated early on that um, you'd find that architects and engineers were just too busy to learn about indoor air quality issues, and, and basically they just wanted you to tell them what to do. Can you tell us a little more about how you have? you know, provided this type of consulting service when working with new construction or on renovation projects?
0: Yeah, um, basically, m- most of my clients way back when most people didn't recognize that indoor air quality could actually cause problems were owners of buildings or uh, architects or engineers who had been involved in a major problem in a building. Um with a lot of complaints about indoor air quality and uh the owner or the architect someone usually either being sued or or having a a problem um would say you know we better find somebody who can help us with this and indoor air quality consultants were you know few and far between and i knew a little bit about it i started looking at it in 78 and People would call me and say, you know, I asked and, you know, everybody said I should call you. And so how do you work? And and architects are used to having a bunch of consultants on a project, electrical, a mechanical consultant, a structural consultant, a lighting consultant, a acoustic consultant. And generally, the architect designs the building and he sends it to these consultants and asks them to mark it up and tell them what they ought to do for each piece that that the consultant specializes in. But because my concept was one of the dynamic interactions of all of the different aspects of the building, what I did, and I was really making it up as I went along, was said we really need to get the whole design team together uh, and the owner's representative, and we need to talk about what the issues are, that might be of concern in this building and how each of our concerns affects the others. Today, this is a big kind of buzzword in in architecture and design, sustainable or green design, called integrated design, but uh, at that time, it was just sort of obvious to me that that was what you had to do to properly address it. So we would have a meeting like that, and and once everybody's met face-to-face, then you could deal with each other much better by phone or, or sending a fax or, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the Internet in those days, um, and, and we, could, we could progress. And over the years, that's evolved to where I would identify. I would tell the architect, you need to identify somebody in your office who's going to be your indoor air quality, uh, you know, point person, and I'll work with that person, and we'll train that person, and we'll basically work me out of a job, except when something becomes too complicated or over, over the head or outside the the knowledge of of that individual. So that's pretty much how it's evolved over over the years. Well, how,
1: how you've worked, you've worked on a uh, lot of interesting projects, and and there are probably a couple that um, we would like to touch upon. You know, the Waterside Mall and the Clean Space in, in Crystal City. I think a lot of people, a lot of the listeners may not be aware that the Environmental Protection Agency had issues in, of indoor air quality in their buildings and employees moved out. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there?
0: Yeah. Well, Waterside Mall was originally uh, built as a housing project in southwest Washington and uh, was converted to an office space, and it had a a shopping mall integrated into it. And it was one of the three spaces that EPA occupied, the Environmental Protection State, occupied as its headquarters back in, uh, well, I know at least as early as the early 80s, I think the late 70s. I'm not sure when they moved there. In 1988, they had some new carpet installed in the building, and a lot of the employees complained uh, about uh, symptoms and and associated them with the carpet. And uh, a lot of them refused to come back into the building. And I guess I was reasonably well-known to uh, that community. I had been consulting to EPA's Indoor Air Program Office for, uh, I guess, uh, maybe three or four years at that time. And, and, and some of the employees said, uh, you know, w- w- you, you've got to get – how been involved if we're going to move into this new space that you've created for us out in Crystal City. Crystal City is just north of what was then called National Airport, now called Ronald Reagan Airport. Um, and there are a lot of office buildings out there. And EPA was progressively occupying more and more space there. The administrative division of EPA took one space on the second floor of this building, and set it aside for the 30 employees that uh, that refused to go back into the Waterside Mall. And uh, those employees asked to have a meeting with me. We met in a church, actually, not far from Waterside Mall. And I had already been out to Crystal City to see the space, and it had operable windows. Uh, it was the end of the building, so it had three different uh, orientations, and uh, it was not really a very clean space by indoor air quality standards. It had a lot of particle board cabinetry and uh, a lot of problems that that I won't go into details on. So I met with these employees, and I said, uh, you know, the space has operable windows. It's on the second floor. It's near a busy intersection. There's some landscaping uh, around the building right there. How many of you want to open the windows? And half of them raised their hand. And then it said, how many of you don't want to open the windows? And half of them raised their hand. And that was a really uh, accurate prediction of what happened to that space because only half of the 30 ever ended up working in that space. Um, and uh, they, they did clean it up according to some instructions that, that I gave, but it certainly wasn't an ideal space for anybody, let alone people who were sensitive to indoor air pollution
1: what about this pcb contamination in this in a 26-story office building in in san francisco what was the source of the uh contamination
0: there well what we didn't know at that time but epa found out not long after that was that uh, there was a lot of leakage from fluorescent light ballasts uh that were uh Manufactured before 1978, um, and almost all office buildings had some PCB in the air from uh, electronic devices. Even houses, uh, electronic devices in kitchens, uh, were uh, had some PCBs as a <clears throat> a, a insulating material uh, in in their electronic components. But the building in San Francisco had its uh, transformers in a vault under the sidewalk adjacent to the building and um, it was an interesting coincidence that the race from uh, the bay to the ocean in San Francisco that takes place every year called the Beta Breakers had just started when this thing exploded on a Sunday morning and so there were a lot of news news, uh, teams there and TV cameras and so they got some really good pictures of what happened. The, uh, the conduit leading into the building, into the sub-basement where all the uh, power equipment uh, was, um, brought a lot of that uh, smoke and, and contamination into the sub-basement and then the building was divided. There, were, there was one system that ventilation system served the lower seven floors and the sub-basements and another one that served the upper portion of the building. And the one serving the lower portion of the building was operating at the time this happened. So the smoke and the PCBs and it turned out some uh, dibenzofurans were carried in and distributed throughout the lower seven floors of the building, which were subsequently closed and remained closed for about nine months while they were completely gutted and, and, and cleaned up. I was brought into the building by a federal government agency that occupied the 21st and portions of the 23rd floor, and their employees were uh, very valuable to them, and they wanted to make sure that nobody moved out because they were afraid of the contamination. So they hired me and uh, asked me to go in there and and measure the PCBs and, uh, and, and determine what the level of hazard was, and uh, as a result, we, we did discover that there were levels of PCBs on the 21st floor that exceeded the NIOSH criteria for PCBs, which was one microgram per cubic meter, and that was not established as a safe level, it was established as the lowest level that was practical to measure with industrial hygiene techniques. Um, and and that level was exceeded in a couple of our samples uh, on the 21st floor. That agency eventually moved out of the building. Interestingly, we measured in another building uh, where they were temporarily housed um, as a background, and we also found rather high levels in this other building that wasn't known to be contaminated, but it had been constructed in 1964, it had fluorescent light ballasts, and now we know, it's it's history now, almost every building with uh, fluorescent light ballasts from that era are going to have PCB in the air okay. and, and on surfaces. And PCB is not very volatile, so most of it ends up in dust and on surfaces.
1: Joe, um, I know that you're going to be leaving soon. Go ahead and uh, get a question. Yeah,
0: quick question for, for you, Hal.
2: Um, you know, I... I heard different stories about the the actual risk of, of PCBs. And I'm just curious, in your research on the issue, I assume you did quite a bit of research at that time, were you able to find anything definitive about um, what type of risk it might cause for people?
0: Well, the, the, I, I'm not a health scientist, so, you know, it's not my expertise, but you're right. I did definitely look into it. We, we simply follow the NIOSH uh, guidance on it, which required, when we discovered this, we got these high levels on our first set of samples. I had to make my crew, I had three guys sampling up there. They had to put on the moon suits and the uh, independent breathing devices, and they had reopened the building. So they're riding up in the elevator with all these employees, and they're, you know, dressed in a a, uh, hazardous uh, cleanup uh, manner. But, the, the concerns were liver damage, um, a lot of chlorinated uh, compounds when they are exposed to high temperatures form dioxins and furans, and we did uh, do analysis for dioxins and furans. They're pretty expensive at that time. It was a $1,000 a sample, but we did find some furans in a ratio that was reasonable in terms of, what data there were on on the level of furans and dioxins you might find in PCBs, and uh, there's a concern about cancer with uh, with the dioxins and the furans. PCB is very complicated uh, and and the dioxins are very complicated. There are a lot of different congeners, and some are much more toxic than others. There continues to be a lot of controversy today because at least in Europe and to some extent in the us PCBs have been found in sealants that are used in buildings, including, including schools. So the concern about PCBs is not gone. But the major health hazards are, are those that are shared with a lot of chlorinated compounds, and that's about uh, liver damage and, and uh, chloracne uh, skin manifestations. I've got a uh run to the airport
2: here shortly and actually i was coming to san francisco i noticed you've done you know you've done a lot of work in and around that area and a, and a lot of it or at least you've done a good bit with homes that had been either had pesticide or, or terminus termiticide uh misapplications i guess and i'm curious because i've got a friend in dealing with this in north carolina right now what types of um what types of issues did the people in those homes have and and what type you know how did you go about trying to figure out uh, what those issues were coming from? I mean, did they know there was a misapplication, or is that something you had to search out
0: well th- th- they didn't know there had been a misapplication; they simply knew that after their house was treated, they began having symptoms and From my perspective, what was going on, you know termite uh control companies have to be licensed and the products they use have to be registered with the EPA. But the the licensed operator hires a bunch of workers to go in and do the work, and there's a kind of more is better attitude because if somebody hires you to do a termite uh, prevention project, then... You don't want them calling you in a year and saying, "Hey, I've got termites again. Why? Why didn't you guys do a better job?" So there's a tendency to uh, overuse. There are a lot of <coughs> documented cases of under dilution. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> under dilution of um, of the mixtures. Uh, we're talking about <coughs> pentachlorophenol and. Uh, and later uh, chlordane and chlorpyrifos, basically, uh, in the period of the late 70s through the early 90s. And um, it's sort of an attitude of more is better. There's also the problem, I don't know if you've ever put on a a Tyvek suit and crawled underneath a house in a crawl space, uh, which, you know, in California, primarily we don't have basements. It's mostly crawl spaces. And you get under there, and it's hot. Uh, and uh, you get sweaty and it's uncomfortable. Sometimes the clearance isn't very good um, and so a lot of the applications were done from outside the crawl space in through the vents with a long rod and uh, instead of treating evenly over the area of the crawl space, they put a larger amount in one location near the perimeter that they can reach easily. So. It's it's a it's a problem of practicality, um, and a problem of kind of CYA in order to not get callbacks, and perhaps a problem of hiring labor that isn't trained the way the operator him or herself is trained, and I think finally, there were magazines that were sold to this industry in that era that were full of articles saying how all these chemicals were safe. You know, don't worry about it. I drink it for breakfast.
2: Well, Hal, what kind of complaints did the folks have that were in the homes? What type of health issues were they uh, showing?
0: There were uh, respiratory problems. There were. Uh, I did. I did an investigation of one case where uh, chloracne uh, in the in the children. It turns out because these compounds, like PCBs, are not very volatile, they end up on surfaces and in dust, and children tend to have much higher exposure than adults uh, through skin contact and also through uh, inadvertent ingestion. You know, a small child puts everything in their mouth. So in this case, which was in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, um, the children had uh, something like five times the levels in their blood and urine that the parents had. Uh, This was a, a house, it was a kit, a log cabin kit, that the father bought and came on a, you know, on a truck and, and you assembled it, and the logs were pressure treated with pentachlorophenol, and, um, and 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 the children, uh, b- both of the sons, young young children, I think less than ten, uh, became very ill as as a result. Their exposures were huge uh, because these logs were pressure treated with pentachlorophenol. There was a lot of pentachlorophenol in the house. Herb, I'm going to ask
2: uh, Ann, I'm sorry, Hal, I'm going to ask Ann and uh, Cliff to uh, mute me because I'm going to be traveling a little bit. I'm going to be listening in, and I'm hoping when you talk a little bit about your house, uh, because I know you've uh, you've worked hard on, on lessening your amount of uh, imprint, I guess, on the carbon imprint on the planet, I'll be curious to hear uh, how successful you've been. And I'll try and join the group again for the roundup. But thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Joe.
1: Good. Well, Annie, uh, it's halftime.
2: Let's go ahead and uh, self-soap. Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Graywolf Sensing Solutions, who
1: use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com.
2: ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products. Remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com.
1: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at Legends-Enviro.com.
2: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Drys Products, providing equipment
1: for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-az.com.
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n.com.
1: Cleanfax and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, Hal, um, you've been successful in getting to work with architects and engineers early on during uh, the design of a project. Uh, to ensure that IAQ is taken into consideration throughout the project, what tips can you give the next generation of indoor air quality professionals to help them get a seat at the table from the beginning of a project?
0: Well, as I as I said earlier, most of my early clients were uh, organizations that had been involved in a serious IAQ problem or supposed problem, and and many of them. Uh, had been sued, and they learned their lesson the hard way and decided they better have an indoor air quality consultant. The world's a different place now. I think um, a significant fraction of building owners and architects and engineers recognize that indoor air quality is an issue, Uh, and I'm not sure that, that... My history is so relevant today. I think what's going on today, obviously, is the movement toward green buildings, and indoor air uh, is almost always considered an important part of a green building. And the majority of owners who are interested in a green building are looking at the lead rating system or some other rating system as a way of getting recognized as having a, a green building so uh, while I'm not a particular fan of the lead rating system, I don't think it's uh, very rigorous in terms of indoor air quality as well as a number of the other areas that it that it treats certainly being familiar with the requirements of the of the lead rating system would be a prerequisite for someone to to be involved in Uh, the vast majority of the projects where uh, a consultant might be brought in for indoor air. My my work today, when I get involved in buildings, tends to be with so-called green designers who realize that their client wants something more than just a lead rating. They really seriously want good indoor air quality, and they have enough concern to be willing to pay for a consultant that, go beyond just the point shopping that uh, is done in, in most lead projects. You can get a lead platinum rating without getting any points for indoor environmental quality uh, if you get enough points for other things. So um, it's, there isn't a single answer to your question. I just think becoming more and more knowledgeable about the various con- con- contributors or potential contributors to indoor air pollution and, and the solutions and um, you know, the, I've never advertised, I've never marketed my services. My work has always come to me, so I'm probably not the best one to to answer the question that you've asked.
1: Okay, well, you know, speaking about lead, you know, that program has gotten some bad publicity recently, in particular for encouraging the use of new products without having done enough research to find out how these products will work in buildings over time. Do you think that this criticism is legitimate or not?
0: I I think I would restate the criticism if you're referring to that report from uh, the Environmental Health Institute, I think, at Yale. Uh, It was that the products use chemicals that haven't been sufficiently researched. Um, What we're seeing as emissions testing is becoming more common and and lists are created of uh, certified Uh, products with respect to emissions is that manufacturers are reducing the level of those VOCs in their products that have traditionally been identified as hazardous and that might prevent them from getting uh, the the certification or the label that they're looking for, and they're replacing them with with new chemicals. And those new chemicals are coming into use all the time, and, and we know very little about them. I think that was one of the criticisms from that report. And then the other was simply that you could, as I said a minute ago, get a platinum rating on a building without getting any points at all for indoor environmental quality. The response from the defenders of LEED was, well, you have to meet standard 62, and that that provides uh, good indoor air quality. And my response to that is standard 62, ASHRAE standard 62, is a minimum code standard. It's not intended to deliver a high quality uh, indoor environment. It's intended to prevent uh, a problem in in the indoor environment Uh, and even at that its focus is on perceived indoor air quality not uh, a rigorous analysis of all the chemicals that might be in space.
1: Well thank you for that answer. You know we hear a lot about damp buildings and uh, lately, VOCs, volatile, volatile organic compounds and, and tight buildings. What other IQ problems do you feel don't get enough attention
2: today?
0: Well, I, I, I do believe that moisture is a major issue and that any building with uh, leaks or with uh, excess uh, moisture accumulation or evidence of, of past moisture accumulation uh, re- really need to be addressed. And and my sense is that we still don't understand completely what moisture does. There's been a big focus on mold because so often you can see it, but I suspect there may be a connection to bacteria and or viruses uh that is also that are also related to damp buildings and, and uh I'm hopeful that we'll learn more about that in, in the in the coming years. I think the the biggest unmet need in terms of indoor air research and action to prevent health problems really is in the area of semi-volatile organic compounds, things like the pesticides we were discussing before, uh, the fire retardants, PCBs are uh, there really to prevent fire, and um, there are flame retardants in furnishings uh, that... uh, there's increasing concern about the health effects of exposure to these flame retardants, and particularly now plasticizers, the phthalates that are added to so many uh, plastic materials, including flooring and wall covering, and also a huge number of consumer products, so that the whole population is being exposed to a lot of these semi-volatile compounds, which As I said before, they stay around for a long time because they're not very volatile. They cover every surface in the building eventually, uh, and especially children are uh, very highly exposed to them. And, of course, this is the worst time in our life to be exposed to a a toxic chemical is when uh, we're very young. So uh, I would say SVOCs are going to be A major topic in coming years. We're going to see them included in emissions testing. We're going to see more and more uh, research on SVOCs and in fact uh, there have been workshops recently in Europe and, and, and just two weeks ago in China and I've been involved in organizing a workshop for the Indoor Air Institute on SVOCs together with EPA working with the toxicologists to bring information we have about exposure To the toxicologists so they can target their research on those chemicals to which we're really most exposed.
1: Thank you. Um, What part of indoor air quality or building science are you most passionate about today,
0: Hal? Well, that that in a sense hasn't changed. It's building ecology. It's putting it all together but what I see happening now for the first time really is some very serious science from outside of the indoor air community is being brought to apply to the indoor environment and that's being done by the Sloan Foundation in New York which has funded a lot of grants several million dollars to what are pe- people who are microbial ecologists people who work in tropical jungles and in marine environments and in other environments They're getting grants to look at the microbial ecology of the indoor environment. And the purpose Sloan has is to get enough information to make it obvious to the federal government, EPA, and and the National Institutes of Health that they should be looking at the microbial ecology of the indoor environment. And what the next step in this is to bring together the microbial ecologists with the building scientists and the indoor air scientists and really see the whole building as a system, because you can't just study the microbial ecology without understanding the whole building ecology. So for me, it's much more high-quality science at the detail level, but with a clear connection to the understanding of the whole building as a system, the dynamic interdependence of the various components of the building.
1: Speaking of research, uh, where do you see the biggest disconnects between research and the practice of indoor air quality
0: today? Uh, Indoor air quality isn't any different from a lot of other aspects of of the building. There's generally about a 20 to 35-year delay between when the science happens and when it makes its way into Codes and regulations and standards and guidelines, I see an awful lot of uh, awful lot of use of techniques that have been discredited by science in terms of building investigations uh, misuse of co two uh, I don't know if any of your listeners are still using settle plates to try and characterize the microbial indoor environment, but uh, it 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 really is. There's a there's a gap, and IAQA and the ISIAC are both uh, organizations that are formed to try to bring the knowledge of science to the practitioners. But the biggest the biggest gap is we don't know how to best deliver that knowledge to the people who need it when they need it. And of course, your show is is one vehicle for that. Um, and there just aren't enough uh, good vehicles for it. And and we don't. We really don't know enough about how, how to deliver the knowledge. Hopefully the internet and iPhones and you know, being able to be in touch all the time everywhere is one remedy for the problem. Um, the, the, the other is that the indoor air field is dominated now by commercial activity and it always will be. I mean somebody has to pay you to, to spend your time or, or you have to pay for products. But how can we bridge the gap between what is marketable and what makes sense from a scientific point of view? And I think that's, that's the big challenge that we have without going all the way to regulation, but just delivering knowledge and getting good products out there and teaching people how to use them properly.
1: You know, you are executive director for ISIAC, which is the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. What are you doing to help ensure that research and practice uh, get more closely aligned?
0: Well, as you may know, we have a journal which is primarily about science, but we have an initiative, which is really my initiative, which is try to develop another publication that really will translate the research into practice for our members and for the larger world, that uh, are, are interested in, in, in learning what science has taught us about indoor air problems. And um, a publication, you know, whether it's on the web or whether it's a, a, a print or, or an a emailed file is, is just one approach. Our conferences are increasingly paying attention to uh, the, the professionals, the practitioners, not just the science, but we are, we are just learning how to do that, and, and it's something that the Board of Directors is dedicated to. It's something that I've been committed to for 30 years. When I got into indoor air quality, quite honestly, when I discovered the problem existed in 1978, I thought I would study it for a year, I would teach architects all about it, and I would go back to working on low-income housing. That was in 1978 we still haven't even begun to do what you know I had as an ambition at that time. So we all have a lot of work to do.
1: Seems like the more questions we ask, uh, the more questions uh, need to be asked. Uh, well,
0: tell us purpose a little... of a, the best question is one that leads to a better question.
1: Right. Okay. That's great. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of ISIAC.
0: ISIAC was founded... Uh, during the 1990 Indoor Air Conference, which took place in Toronto. At that time, the leaders of the international indoor air community organized what is known as the uh, International Academy of Indoor Air Sciences, and that was to be by invitation to, I think there were about 70 of us that were the original fellows of the academy. They saw the need to also have an organization that, the larger uh, community of indoor air could join and participate in, and, and, and so they decided to found ISIAC. The, uh, uh, so ISIAC was first organized in Canada, uh, and the Secretariat moved around the world. It was in uh, Canada for a while, it moved to Finland, uh, excuse me, moved to Italy, then it moved to Finland, it just moved here uh, to my office uh, a year and a half ago. And we are something uh, close to 800 members strong now and uh, are expecting growth, uh, significant growth, over the next five years in in our membership.
1: Um, You know, let's talk about uh, Scandinavia. Um, You know, Scandinavia, I think, in North America has a reputation for being ahead of the curve in regard to IAQ issues, I know you've been there and worked there. Um, what do you think? Do they deserve that reputation?
0: Oh, absolutely. The first emissions testing was done, in begun in late 1960s by Ib Anderson, former head of the Danish National Institute of Environmental Health, and Lars Mohab, one of the pioneers of the indoor air field, uh, working on VOCs and uh, they had tight buildings before the rest of us because of their severe climate, uh, because they're fairly wealthy countries. Sweden dedicates a significant amount of money to building science and building research. Um, and, and so they had very low air exchange rates. And in the late 70s, uh, or in the 70s, when particle board and plywood emitted so much formaldehyde, they had very high levels of formaldehyde, and they had symptoms, and they figured it out, uh, and and they're willing to go ahead and take action there, um, whereas in the U.S. we have to prove that there's a hazard before we take action. Europe, in general, I don't want to over overstate this, but they operate more on the precautionary principle. If you think there's a hazard and you don't have strong evidence that there isn't one, then uh, you, you, you take action as a preventive measure.
1: Okay, um, last week we had a Dr. Corsi and we talked a lot about indoor air quality and this event coming up, uh, Indoor Air 2011 Texas. Uh, I understand that you want more practitioners at the show and more interaction between practitioners and researchers. One of our concerns is that they have these five-day programs, and most practitioners can't get away from their business for a five-day conference, especially a conference that uh, during a, a bad economy. You know, we suggested off the year that the conference might have a beginning or end focus on research and practitioner relationship. Maybe two or three days uh, dedicated to practitioners. Uh, you know, any thoughts that you would have on on something like this?
0: I I think it's a great idea, and and I think in a conference like the Indoor Air Conference or any large conference that lasts for five days, you need to organize the sessions so that the similar items form a, a thread that builds on the previous session. Each session builds on the previous one. So, clustering them all at one end of the conference, the beginning or the end of the conference, would make great sense to me, so I think it's a great idea. What was Corsi receptive to that
1: i I hope yeah. uh, you know Joe's working on it with him, so hopefully uh, you know we can get him to do that because I, I know that a lot of the listeners uh, probably don't go because they can't get away, and then they'd probably be more likely to go if they can get clusters so that they can kind of get in and get in and get out.
0: Yeah, and Um, I know that we're working together with Glenn Fellman and IAQA. mm -hmm. Uh, I think there may be a discount for IAQA members and that there may even be an IAQA event uh, piggybacked on the Indoor Air Conference. So uh, we're we're, we're very focused on on trying to make it appealing to and useful to, to practitioners.
1: Uh, what questions about indoor air quality would you like to see more research focused on?
0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think we, we're headed for a time where we're going to see a lot more work on semi-volatile compounds, particularly the phthalates and the flame retardants, as well as continued attention to to pesticides. You know, the SARS outbreak and H1N1 have made everybody kind of bug conscious or, or concerned about uh, uh, about infection and, and about the contamination of a biological nature. And so people are buying a lot of sterilization products or products that claim to sterilize the environment. And and the average consumer doesn't uh, know enough to carefully evaluate the side effects of these things, the propellants, and even the active ingredients themselves uh, do, do pose some hazards. So... Uh, we're going to see more and more people exposed, and I think we'll see more uh, more symptoms in response, and I think we'll see perhaps even uh, a lot more federal government uh, research and eventually some, some regulation to try to protect people from their own good intentions. So the semi-volatiles are going to be a big one. I mentioned the work of the Sloan Foundation, and I'm optimistic that, that these people are – uh, bringing the techniques of uh, analyzing the DNA of, of, uh, of microbial contaminants, they're able to do bulk analysis very rapidly, uh, identify a very uh, large number of samples very quickly and very economically. We're going to learn a lot about the indoor environment in terms of microbial con- components, mold, Viruses and, and bacteria—that uh, is going to accelerate our understanding of what we're exposed to, and I think we're going to—we're going to really learn a lot that is of value in terms of protecting people. And and there too, I think the federal government will get involved in in this kind of work.
1: Uh, Hal, I just got a text question from a listener, and the uh, the, uh, the question is as follows. Hal did some research years ago on plants and buildings. Most of it refuted Wolverton's claims. Can you ask him to touch on that issue briefly?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the briefest answer is go to my website, and you can read, I think, three separate posts there. One uh, I wrote in 1992 for a newsletter. Uh, and and contains a a segment by John Gurman, who used to work at EPA. What we found, and and I've met Wolverton, I've spoken to him and to the people who worked for him, they they were doing research in what we call a static chamber, a sealed box, and it's just not the way you test the dynamic indoor environment. It's a great example of non-dynamic testing. It turned out that the plants themselves weren't removing the VOCs as, uh, as claimed by Wolverton, but it was the soil, the medium in which the plant was being grown, and there was some activity in the root zone of the plant, but uh, the plants themselves weren't weren't active, and most of the research that's been done in chambers, the so-called uh, you know emissions testing or, or sink effect of plants. Um, Even if you took the data from that research, even if you believed it, and it's not uh, good research, the removal rate of VOCs is equivalent to less than one-tenth of an air change per hour in the house. Well, even a tight, energy-conserving house through leakage has more than a tenth of an air change per hour, and that would be if you filled the house with three layers of plants, so you couldn't even use the house. It would be full of plants, and the removal rate of VOCs would be equivalent to a tenth of an air change per hour. So um, it, and, and then the field studies that have been done have just not shown that plants are effective in removing VOCs. There just isn't any scientific evidence to support it. What happens is that the plant in, in, indoor plant industry and researchers at universities, and well-intentioned cooperative extensions, they pick up this information. It's still on the NASA website because Wolverton did his first project on this when he was still at NASA, and uh, it, it appears to be valid. And it's a kind of a snowball effect, or, or, or something like that. It's a self-replicating myth.
1: Well, I'd really like to know how you really feel on that uh, subject. <laughs> Thanks. So I'll, and, I'll try uh,
0: not to hold back my feelings.
1: You know. Oh, that's okay. no, it's, it, I think it's good. Well, it's probably time that we kind of go into the roundup. But before that, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, Joe's question. I, I suspect he's listening. Tell us a little bit about your house and you know what you've done there in terms of energy efficiency. I think Joe wanted to know that.
0: Well, you know, the most important thing you can do is to pay attention to what you're using and 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 what it uses. I when I moved in here, I had a then 25 year old refrigerator. I, I bought the the best energy efficient refrigerator on the market at the time, about eight years ago, and I saved five kilowatt hours a day just by replacing my refrigerator. The same thing, my my computer and my assistant's computers are both laptops that use a fraction of the energy of a desktop with, with a large monitor, um, so you know, I could go on and on about efficient appliances, but the main thing I've done here is I have photovoltaics on the roof, and I have a domestic uh, solar domestic hot water heater, and so I'm basically paying nothing for my electricity now, because the electric company has to buy back my excess production, and what I produce... Monday through Friday between noon and 6, they pay me almost $0.30 cents a kilowatt hour, and what I use or what they pay me the rest of the week is around $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour. So if I'm very careful about what I do from noon to 6 on weekdays, uh, I end up not having uh, an electric bill. The state of California paid for a third of the cost of my photovoltaics, uh and uh, – the domestic hot water heater, which was here when I bought the house back in 86, was put in in 81, and the state of California paid for half the cost of that to encourage energy conservation. So um, that, that, that's sort of the short version.
1: That's great. I think we're going to move now into our roundup, so just hang on, Hal. Yep. Move on, hit em up, hit em up. on, on, up. Go high, shut up. I think we're going to go with Dieter first and then Joe and, uh, I'll, I'll do third, and then Hal's going to bat cleanup. So, uh, Dieter, any comments?
3: Well, yeah, quite a few, but and I'll make it short. I, I think that uh, uh, he touched on a couple of wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, topics, and I like it. And you just can't jump into a pool and don't know whether it's water or whether it's hot metal. And we are doing that. And uh, I work for a very, very large chemical corporation and i know what's going on with their toxicology research and this and that um and um the the one thing that bothers me is that we are in the year yeah 2010 and damn it we knew how to build buildings 2000 years ago needless to say there was no plastic that was probably damn good <laughs> And, yeah, I, I I said it on every one of those shows. You know, I grew up with bricks, with wood, and with glass. I didn't know what a plastic was until when I was a kid, Bakelite came out, which is a formaldehyde-based plastic. It was the first plastic I've ever seen in my life. Therefore, I don't have asthma or any of these <laughs> other nasty diseases you get when you in a tight house nowadays where everything is off-gassing from everything. But I think we got to watch that. We should watch that and be very careful of what we are doing. Uh, even though the concentrations obviously are not so high that yeah we are killing people, and that is not the idea. When I live in my house, which fortunately I think it has three air changes an hour bust by the leakage of the house, my house was built in, uh, 35 years ago. But, uh,
1: um, uh, the,
3: the research, I think the research, I mean, we have done, we know, we know the acute toxicity of all these materials that we are having, and we are at the bottom of the dose-response curve, at the very beginning of the dose-response curve, and heaven knows, Uh, what is happening down there I I much rather test something at a high concentration and then go backwards and I said look I know this and this is going to happen and if I go a hundred times lower or a thousand times lower I don't expect anything but I this type of, of, of research I don't see and I haven't heard about anything everybody says we should do more testing we should do more testing I haven't seen any good papers that really went into that part of doing research, okay go yeah,
2: yeah. I just um uh, uh, I'd like to uh, if Hal wants to comment on Deer's question, I'd appreciate that, but before i I've got to check in here before I do hal I'm curious um in your experience, how have the photovoltaics come along? Are we making uh good progress on that? I know you're doing well. But how long ago did you put yours in, and uh, how have we come along since then?
0: I, I, I'm not an expert on it. I am a member of the North uh, Northern California Solar Energy Association. I get the Solar Age magazine, and I try to keep up to date. I know there's been a small amount of progress. Uh, I think what we need is a major infusion of uh, research funding. The potential for photovoltaics is, really untapped at this point. And uh, I think that integrating them into the roofing material or uh, the horizontal, the vertical surfaces of a building is probably the wave of the future. There's some products out there that do that. I think the, the, the barrier really is uh, scale. And when it gets up to scale, I think we're going to find that photovoltaics are commonplace.
2: Thanks for that, and I wonder if you could comment on the sustainability of those systems um, you know, through the total life cycle, or maybe just touch on that issue uh, with respect to green buildings and some of the uh, more current uh, products coming out, and, and maybe just talk to listeners for a second about sustainability in general and the life cycle.
0: Well, specifically on photovoltaics, there have been life cycle assessments of them, and they show that it does take somewhere between three and seven years of use to pay back the environmental costs of their manufacture, transport, and installation. So, you know, there are no free lunches. Um, but there are some things that you can do that, as Amory Levins once put it, it's not a free lunch, it's the lunch they pay you to eat. And that's things like uh, compact fluorescent lights and now the in, uh, the introduction of LEDs. We're going to find that our plug loads, when we begin really tapping the potential for efficiency and conservation. Our plug loads and our building loads are going to be so minimal, we're really going to be looking primarily at the energy required for ventilation, uh, for heating, and for cooling. And so the real challenge is to find ways to do those things more efficiently uh, and at a lower environmental cost. Reducing the sources will reduce the need for ventilation and therefore the need to heat or cool the new air brought in from outside. So if it's all done together, uh, we can really look at a brighter future. And if we learn how to get around without burning fossil fuels in our vehicles, and we don't burn as many fossil fuels at our power plants, we'll have much cleaner outdoor air, and we can have uh, much more natural ventilation without introducing the pollutants from outside into the indoor environment.
2: Well, I just want to thank you again for joining us, Hal, and I think you might want to mute me, um, Cliff, because it's kind of loud here.
1: Okay. Well, Hal, um, before we conclude, is there anything that you'd like to add? Are there any topics that we didn't touch that you wanted to get into today or anything you'd like our listeners to know?
0: Uh, I, I just think that indoor air is, relatively speaking, a new field. We're learning more and more every day about how little we know. Uh, We're making huge progress, but we're just scratching the surface. I think we need to be humble. We need to acknowledge the limitations of our knowledge uh, and uh, attempt to continue learning all the time. I think that the members of IAQA and ISIAC uh, are committed to that. I think people who listen to your program are committed to trying to learn. I think as long as we recognize the limits of our knowledge, we can keep moving forward.
1: Okay, how can people learn more about you and your business? Uh, please give your website, if you could.
0: Well, my my website has a lot of great information on it, and it's uh, accessible to anybody. It's buildingecology.com, and uh, I've invested a lot in creating a very good free resource uh, for indoor air quality and for sustainability. Also, uh, they can visit the ISIAC website. They can think about getting involved in ISIAC uh, and and consider coming to our conference next June in Austin, Texas.
1: What's the ISIAC uh, website, Hal?
0: ISIAQ.org.
1: Thank you. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank our guest today, Hal Levin, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, Environmental Ann Koalecki, uh, the wingman, Chris Boizel, uh, the people that help us do the show, the IAQ newsman, Glenn Fellman, our cleaning and restoration newsman Michael Ogborn and Jeff Cross, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.